Okay, Robert, very good to see you after a year of uh, not seeing you. <laughs> you too. <laughs> and I've just been at the Bearsville Theater literally every day. Mm -hmm. At home or here. I go nowhere else. How, how do you get your supplies and stuff, you? groceries and stuff? Do you do you have them yeah. delivered or yeah, do you I mean, go get them? <laughs> that's... Uh, actually, I have been getting into the uh, delivery thing. Uh huh. So, yeah, me me too, actually. But it's it's been frustrating because them, sometimes they only bring half of what I ordered. Actually, the last uh, the last order we did got lost in the mail, and I was like, "Good thing we don't rely on them," you know, a hundred percent. You know they. Uh, it's some program that uh, they send like three or four meals for a week. You know? mm -hmm. And the last one we ordered, I was like, two weeks later, I'm like, whatever happened to that? You know, <laughs> it's like, I sh you know, she just said, oh, they lost it in the mail. Great. So, so how, how does it feel to be uh, at home for such a long time? Definitely bizarre. Um, yeah, I mean, normally we would be out on the road. I would be out on the road for at least three to four months out of a year. Yes. And uh, although I got to say my 2019 was kind of screwed up as well. Uh, I know a bunch of stickmen tours got canceled in 2019. Yes. And then, um, of course, Japan and China and the, uh, the 2020 stuff. Uh, cruise to the edge, you know, so between 2019 and 2020, I think something like eight uh, planned tours got canceled yeah. Yeah. on me. Yeah. <clears throat> so luckily I've, uh, I've been uh, rebuilding the Bearsville Theater. So it's actually been kind of a, a good thing. And, but that started in uh, 2019 already, right? It started in August of 2019. Yeah, yeah. And but you you guys have been ready to to launch the new place for almost yeah, a year. We're actually now. ready. Last March, we got shut down two weeks prior to opening. Yeah. Wow. And then this past summer, we tried doing uh, some shows outside, out in the back, mm -hmm. with the 50 person limit and you know I was, I was breaking even at best with that um what something that was uh doing very well was a thing called uh, jazz brunch on sunday mornings and i would have 100 people trying to get in you know so mm -hmm. and we'd have to we'd have to turn them away so and then even after all that it was still just breaking even so mm -hmm. Just yeah, grinding years here. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really, I really can't see how things would change considerably. Well, maybe, maybe locally, right? For you, things will get better soon. But like the the global situation with the touring, I can't see that coming back. At least not well, this year. I mean, year. for this for this place to to break even, I need to put thousands of people into the building. Yes, and and. I can't do that. Yeah. Um, 
you know, trying to make some sense of it. I've, uh, of course, I've gotten into video. Mm-hmm. You know, after 40 years of being an audio guy, I'm now a video guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, sadly, <laughs> Martin Scorsese, I'm not, but, um, you know, just trying to do uh, video shoots and live streaming. And there again, the live streaming, uh, at best, I'm breaking even. Most of them are money. I know it's 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 really really it's really really difficult. But Robert, maybe um, let's let's talk a little bit about you and your 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 past, your musical past, and your your history and getting into the business, because I okay. uh, I I know a little bit about that, um, and I think it's a very interesting story. And so uh, maybe you can start even from your you know like childhood days where you were discovering music and tell us a little bit about uh, you know the the different uh, steps in your career um, yeah that goes way back to uh, the, the 70s um, I come from a large family so I was introduced to a lot of different music you know um, my father was into country and big band my mother was of course was into classical and the beatles oddly enough um, my sisters were into bubblegum rock and like jackson brown type stuff mm. and one brother was into uh you know the whole allman brothers thing and the other brother was very much into Jimi hendrix and the who mm-hmm. and i of course um My very early days, you know, Elton John was a big, uh, you know, I enjoyed it very much. But then I discovered this band called Genesis. Mm-hmm. And that at the time, I literally really heard nothing like it. Um, and I just dove deep into that. And from that, of course, you find Brian Eno, you find King Crimson, You know, you find all this really bizarre stuff. I remember listening to uh, um, WNYC out of New York City. I grew up in New Jersey, so you got all the New York stations. Mm-hmm. They played uh, Sunday night. Um, they had a show on New Sounds, yes. a show called New Sounds on mm-hmm. Sunday nights at like midnight or something back then. And they played... Uh, Brian Eno's Apollo mm-hmm. record, and I was just so blown away by it. That that was John John Schaefer, John Schaefer already, right? Like having that show, right? Probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so I was just listening to really bizarre. I mean, for some reason, that really just hooked me immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but. You know, I was also, I was playing in bands at the time and uh, against my parents' wishes, of course, I wanted to go into the music business. I, of course, thought of myself as a musician back which, then. Which instruments did you play? Uh, guitar and bass, you know, was, was my main thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I was like, well, how can I, how can I make money at this and how can I actually do it? So literally at, at 15 years old, I went into New York City and started interning at recording studios. Um, 
and this record the one recording studio I was working at was also starting a company called the Toy Specialist, Bill Tessar. And he started with his Lynn drum machine where he would rent his Lynn drum machine to to all the studios in New York City. So, you know, that was making him money. So he started building that up. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, what that did was got me into every major recording studio in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, which so, which which year was that approximately? Well, I'm 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 probably blurring the whole thing, but I I did start when I was 15, mm-hmm. and um, when I got out of there, I was like 24. Um, so um, yeah, 50, uh, roughly roughly 10 years. So basically, basically the 80s, right then? Yes. Okay. Uh, 80, yeah. So 1988, I came to uh, Bearswell Studios okay. here mm-hmm. in Woodstock, mm-hmm. and uh, I worked there for five years. That was 1988. In 1989, we opened the Bearswell Theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was working during the day over at the studio, and you know, on the weekends doing shows at the Bearswell uh, Theater. I was still playing in bands then, and uh, slowly, of course, I was making no money being a musician, and I was making money engineering. So mm-hmm. the logical step was to just, you know, concentrate on studio and live sound. Um, so that was yeah. So it was purely like, well, I'm going to starve if I still think I'm a musician, but. So I, I still wanted to make music, you know, mm-hmm. and be in that creative space. So the logical point for me was engineering. Mm-hmm. So uh, again, uh, breezing through the whole thing, I, I think I left uh, Bearsville Studios in '94, and I just immediately started uh, working with uh, all the locals as far as recording. I, I slowly started going on the road then also. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I was working with Tony Levin and David Sanchez and Orleans uh, was a big uh, group out of Woodstock and Robbie Dupree. Um, so it just kind of took off, you know, from there. So just steadily, just keeping at it. So, so it's a good good 25 years that you've been uh, working on the road as a live sound engineer. Yes, absolutely. Oh, and, and basically, uh, as you said, like three to four months out of the year, every year. Uh, some years were more when I was with Todd, I was with Todd Rungern for 10 years and we would, we would be out on the road for six to eight months. Oh, okay. Possibly, you know. Mm-hmm. He did everything in four-year cycles. Mm-hmm. So he'd write a record. The first two years of that, he would tour the record. The next two years, he would tour half the record and the hits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then it started it over again. So the first, the first two years, once a record came out, that was definitely more busy than the, than the second two years. Mm-hmm. 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 So... So in uh, when you went to New York City and you got into all those studios, um, tell me a little bit about what you learned there. 
and and have have you been like what was your initiation into the uh, music technology in the studios in the eighties? Uh, that was the other great thing about Toy Specialists is that we got all the newest gear first. <laughs> it all yeah. came to us, you know, so we would we would be able to tinker with. It. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, the 80s was a big MIDI. The whole MIDI explosion happened in the 80s, so everything was metified. Mm -hmm. um, another uh, bunch of gear that he got, he got a bunch of the Neve modules from Abbey Road Studios. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's like, wow, the Beatles recorded through these. Like, <laughs> like it's going to, you know, have some magical power over what you put through it. But, you know, we'd like to think that. Um, But yeah, I think we got the first digital uh, mixing board mm -hmm. from Yamaha, and it was only a uh, it was a twelve channel digital console, and that was the biggest thing that they had. Um, yeah, so that was like nineteen eighty four, eighty five, I think. Wow. Wow. Yeah, for for me, you know, Robert, because I'm I'm only furious younger than you, but. Um, I think they, those years make all the difference because I was too young to, to, uh, to really understand what happened when things went from analog to dig digital, like, you know, and I, yes, I was sort of like the meaty thing. I was, I was around to understand right. that that was happening, but in like the, uh, um, the real stuff that was happening in studios, I had no idea. And uh, and I remember just reading reading the liner notes back then, you know, just like yeah. in, in 87 was still like analog recording uh, with Dolby uh, SR or something like that, right. right? Like really great sounding records. SR with spectral recording. Okay. What what do you know? Do, okay, so what what did what does that mean? Was there like a know. filter or filter on it or like whatever it is? The point the, the the problem with it is that you had to have that rack in order to play it back on anything. You couldn't just go to any other studio. You had to actually have that in the oh, chain. I see. I see. I see. But they had they had two separate things. You know, they had two different versions of their thing. So if you, also, if you had the wrong. <laughs> If you didn't have S, if you recorded with SR and you didn't have SR, then it wouldn't work. Okay, okay. Um, But I, I think I think those records sounded great, though. Like that was like the time of a really, really beautiful sound. And you already like on this on the side of the automation and MIDI, right? You already had like the the next generation or what was about to come already represented there. Um, right. And so it was kind of like an overlap of technologies at that time. Yeah. I've, I, of course, am dealing with interns these days that have never even seen a tape machine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yes, um, and and we would we would lock up multiple uh, 24 track machines together in order to get. You know, I worked on uh, Metallica's um, Just Justice for All or Injustice for All. I don't mm -hmm. know. They, mm -hmm. they had four. 24 track machines linked together. Each member had 24 tracks of their, you know, <laughs> Lars was on one reel, the guitar player was on another reel, so and so. Um, so how did this, the syncing of those machines work back then? You used SMPTE. You used a SMPTE generator. You would you would uh, print SMPTE onto a track, and the tape machines would would chase the SMPTE code. 
So there was there was like just one machine and one track on the machine that was sort of the master, or how did that work? The the machines would chase the SMPTE generator. Ah. It was actually a rack mounted piece of gear. Okay. And of course, it was kind of like the ADATs later on, where you would you would have to every time you hit play, they'd have to like catch up to you know to actually sync. So mm -hmm. it wasn't like oh you hit play and they're automatically there. No, you had to hopefully, you know, <laughs> within five to ten seconds that they that they lock. Mm -hmm. And of course, you you always ran into trouble with that. But getting back to New York City and getting into the studios, um, I learned a lot uh, more than anything the etiquette of the studio. Mm -hmm. uh, back then, as an assistant engineer or just guy, you're you know you don't say a fucking word. <laughs> no one gives a shit about your opinion. You know, you stand in the corner and you observe. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that. That's definitely the way it was. But, you know, I would be seeing Bob Clear Mountain. I would, I'd be seeing, you know, the guys making these great records. You know, it's just a fly on the wall type, type thing. So, yeah, you did, you did learn a lot. It's, it's the, I guess it's like probably the best kind of education you can get, right? In Absolutely. a way. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, uh, again, I bring up interns that go to these these recording schools and they have no idea. I mean, they can't, they can't possibly teach the real world, mm -hmm. you know, um, I, I don't know if they, if they like discuss Ohm's law, you know, for six months or something like that, but they don't, it's, there's no real, real world working situation in this, yeah. that I'm seeing with these people. And mm. of course, they come to me, and I'm, I just toss them into the fire. It's like, all right, you're on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they're like, "What do I do?" So, so what do you remember? Any particular productions um, in the '80s that like really were also like very emotionally engaging for you as an intern, as somebody who was watching, listening? Uh, well, uh, a couple exciting uh, things for me back then. We were we were transferring all the original Rolling Stones three track recordings to digital. Wow! <laughs> back then, so that was uh, really you know exciting. Um, again, it was it was working with the engineers uh, that that could actually teach me something. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, I actually don't remember. So let me, let me ask you about that. So the, the, the stones, you said that those were three track recordings. Yes, they were three track recordings. It was a, a microphone on the singer, a microphone on the band and a microphone in the room. Wow. That was it. But this is the, that technology, um, like Nat King Cole, all those recordings were, were three-track recordings, probably the early uh, Sinatra, Columbia mm -hmm. stuff was mm -hmm. a track recording. Yeah. Is that is that a technique um, that you um, ever used for recording? Like something as 
downsized? Uh, actually, I, I have. I've done I've done a couple recordings where uh, we we did. Um, you know, the, the the idea was we're not going to multi-track this thing. We are just doing a live take, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, we want we want the mix essentially done. Mm-hmm. Yes, I have I have put that into into practice a couple mm-hmm. times. It's, mm-hmm. you know, of course, having the multi-track stuff, you can manipulate it however you like, and um, you know, I think it was it was uh, some interesting results with it but um yeah i have i have put it into practice so it just it didn't last too long <laughs> yeah so so with a process like that or like the um like let's say old school okay like how important because you already said that like the neve channels from abbey road they they don't really bring the magic that you may think they do right but was right. What what about was was there anything about the signal chain? Um, I mean, even in the eighties, let's say, right? That does we don't have to go back very far, uh, you know, as early as like fifties or sixties. Like, uh, was there anything in the signal chain that you think was really kind of like making the sound of records? Absolutely, uh, uh, what you would call class A electronics. Um, mm-hmm. Those Neve modules, the. You know the 1176 is the tube um, gear. Unlike digital gear, when you hit the peak with digital, it just flatlines. Mm-hmm. With that gear, you would hit the peak, and the electronics would kind of warm it, warm it up a bit. Mm-hmm. So yes, that did that did affect the actual audio, which is why you would you know prefer preferably like a Neve mic pre going into a tube or a class A electronic limiter or compressor. Um, you know, a prime example is listen to John Lennon on uh, Twist and Shout. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they made that record in one day and that was the last, that was the last track of the, the night. Of course, his voice was shot. Mm-hmm. But it's also overloaded. Yeah, it's a saturation. You know, yeah. and you're right. So if you, you listen to that, and that's what the electronics are doing to mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it it um, technically it's wrong because it's overloading, but it does something in a pleasing way to you know for the ear that that uh, you can't get with digital stuff. You know, these plugins that are emulating this stuff it's not it's not like the real thing yeah 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 you know i'm um you know you you are mostly uh, a life engineer life mix engineer uh in the last 25 years but um i i'm wondering in how far like you like the studio um recording experience where you're basically making a piece of art where the studio is studio is part of the process and it's a musical instrument in a way right Absolutely. and and you you take you take that over into the live world where Absolutely. it's live music um i i i find that interesting this kind of like this idea that you take somewhat take the studio on the road right. in 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 like basically a person that represents the studio that would be you right, right. 
and right. then then you you sort of like create the sound live but you only have one chance to get it right uh and I, I, well technically live yes we have one chance but we also record all of our shows so we get second <laughs> chances later on down the road yeah yeah sure but <laughs> But no, I, I, I've always found it uh, like fascinated you. Uh, like I was always because I, I had no idea. So I was just interested in finding out how do you listen, right? Because that and and over the years, um, watching you and and obviously listening to the music you you uh, you play to tune the systems um, right. was very interesting. And then at some point I realized, okay, maybe I should ask Robert what he's actually listening for in these tracks. And then I asked you about that one XTC track, Green Man, right? I, I asked you, like, which, which elements do you actually listen to? And then you pointed out all these elements to me uh, that I wasn't even, even aware of they were there. But once right. you pointed them out, they kind of, they, you know, I was, I was hearing them. So it really is like the familiarity that you have with the material, right? And Absolutely. then you can, you can kind of like judge how it translates in the room. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, right. So you've heard Green Man uh, probably about five million times. Um, um, as also, um, you know, the David Gilmore track, the mm -hmm. Eno track, you know, I mean, I, I play certain things. Mm -hmm. Right. And you're right. I, I, there are certain things in those each of those mixes that I've listened to. Mm -hmm. uh, prime example <clears throat> is the Crimson uh, What's the Crimson track? Walking on air. Okay. Tony's first note mm -hmm. is so over the top. <laughs> and that's something I listen to. If it's not over t the top in the system, then something's wrong yeah. with the system. Mm -hmm. You know, so, right. So you, you basically want that bass note to blow up the system. So, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. the point being is that if it's not there, you know, you know, something's wrong in the low end. Um, so you're you're testing out the extremes in a way, like. Yes. Also with the Eno track, I think there was this really high pitched uh, chime or something. Mm -hmm. I think that that was the one thing that you had never realized it was there, and I was like, well, mm -hmm. I pointed it out. It's like this this thing. It's like eight K, mm -hmm. you know, and a lot of systems can't translate that. So again, you're just listening. For it. But yeah, the, the Green Man thing for me is like a perfectly mixed track. Mm -hmm. The lows, the mids, the highs, it's all kind of even, you know. So that I always start with that to just get the overall picture of, okay, you know, we're, we're kind of hearing it. In, and the other tracks, I start spot, you know, checking out the spots. The Gilmore track, um, there's a bump in 2K on his voice. So I'm always listening to that out of that track. Again, with the Eno, it's the really high stuff. With the Crimson stuff, it's the really low stuff. So from those four tracks, I can kind of, you know, get an idea of what the system is doing. And mm -hmm. then I'll adjust for that. But then from the musicians, um, you know, you'll never hear me with a drummer saying, hit the tom. <laughs> yeah. When I talk to Pat, I'm like, you know, play as loud as you can, like you're you're doing the show, you know, because mm -hmm. that's that's where I'm going to get my levels. When you just do the the tom, it's like you set a level for that, and then the show hits, and of course Pat's playing 
20 times harder. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, you got to like set it all up correctly to begin with. Mm -hmm. so. mm -hmm. uh, that's probably how I differ from other engineers uh, where I, I want the full on, you know, uh, of course you've done a million sound checks with me and that's always like, just get the band on stage and just start hitting it out. You know, that's a lot easier for me to, to actually get a mix. You know, ever, ever since we have this this new system um, with the with the personal monitor mixers, um, sound checks have been so quick, right? Like five minutes, maybe, right? I mean, that's up to you guys. <laughs> I personally don't need a sound check mm -hmm. as long as I can run my my music. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. otherwise it's all set up as you know from the rehearsals, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. So. so uh, um so is there like how, how what do you do you think is your just from your perspective your the main contribution that you're making to the actual music as you mix i mean for me it's obvious right i i i know that you're kind of like the fourth guy who plays right and right. and as i said as the the guy who uses this the technology to bring the music alive and you have the yeah. faders right and um so what what is your i mean what is your um your mindset there i mean what what really do you want um the music to to do to the audience uh there again unlike other engineers i think um I, it's very much a performance for me. I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with what the band is delivering to me mm -hmm. and trying to translate that into the room. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't mix safely, mm -hmm. you know, don't, you know, if something like uh, level five, you know, that's supposed to bash you over the head. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not supposed to be a Steely Dan track. You know what I mean? So I'm not going to mix it like a Steely Dan track. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's going to be this hardcore, heavy, 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 heavy thing. And I'm mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to without without uh, you know shaving eyebrows. I I try to just make it powerful enough in the room if if the system can handle it. And so in the in let me just uh, uh, you know in that in that moment of wanting the music to have that impact, which elements of the mix do you control then is it only the fader like the volume fader at that point or is there um like what which which elements do you touch like like level five is a good example in stigma show which is mostly the last piece right and right. the question is like is your system so well tuned throughout the show that you're only dealing with levels or do you are you still kind of like uh do you still for, for the most part, at that point, I'm just dealing with levels. Um, okay. The EQ stuff is going to come earlier in the show. Um, of, of course, the the difficult, not necessarily difficult part, but the the jumping around I have to do is between you and Tony as far as effects are concerned. It, you mm -hmm. know, vocal solos. Um, you know, I will affect them with either reverb or delay or something, depending on, you know, whether it calls for it or not. And that's just tap tempo, you know, 
into time with what you guys are delivering. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's what's the uh, track of yours that you guys keep switching back between solos? Um, uh, uh, mantra. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have to do a little bit of dancing on that one, you know, <laughs> yes. in yeah. order to to like. In order to shut off, if you're doing a solo and then uh, Tony comes right in on something without, you know, I, I have to turn yours off and turn his on kind of thing mm-hmm. while making a, making adjustments volume-wise, mm-hmm. you know, so going from guitar to bass. So um, you come out of a, a solo. If you go to bass and your effect is still on, then it's gonna, obviously going to affect that. Sure, so, sure. Yeah, that's that's a little bit of dancing that goes yeah. around on that, but for the most part, it's pretty it's pretty well tuned. So yeah, I am dealing with um, groups, mm-hmm. and uh, with stick men, I I do uh, uh, they're co- they're called uh, DCAs on the uh, Midas stuff, but the main drum kit will be controlled by one fader. The toms are separate, controlled by another fader. Okay. Then of course Tony's why, why, why is why is that? Why are the drums uh, the toms separate? Uh because uh some tunes I want the toms louder. Okay. I want to be able to just take the toms and, and push them like um <laughs> sorry, I'm bringing to another one of yours. Um <laughs> dun, 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 um the one I always ask you for, we do it in sound check. Uh, cusp. Cusp. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those toms need to be up front. You yeah, know, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Okay, I see, I see. So something like that. Yeah. Um, Tony's low end is one thing. Tony's high end is another thing. Uh, your stereo. And then it's uh, vocals from everyone and effects. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, those are all separately controlled that I could just take the group up or, or take it down. Um, so in the, that, I'd have to go into individual channels. Yeah. I was going to ask about that. So the individual channels, um, is there anything special at all in the signal path or is it just the pure, the pure mixer channel? Do, do you run a compressor at all? Yes. Compressors on the vocals. Mm-hmm. Uh, compressor on Tony's low end. Okay. Gates on the toms. Okay. Sometimes. Okay. Um, then of course it's just EQ, of course, for for all the toms. I, I mean, all the drums. Yeah. I'm a big fan of high pass filters. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So, you know, with the snare drum, snare drum and the toms, and of course all the metal stuff. I'll put uh, high pass filters as well as the vocals because that'll get out the popping sound. Um, your stuff, your stereo mix, I don't really do anything to. It's kind of just flat and yeah. uh, stereo. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a high pass filter on Tony's top end, mm-hmm. cut off at 300 mm-hmm. cycles. Mm-hmm. Um, the snare top is like 130, the snare bottom is 100. Okay. Toms, I'll do uh, like 120, one, right, 120 on the higher toms, 
um, 100 on the mid toms and then 80 on the lower stuff. Mm -hmm. And then hi-hat and the overheads all go up to 300. Mm -hmm. Wow. So basically all that low end, you know, schmutz gets, gets rid of yeah. all this. Yeah. And, um, and with with Pat and Tony, like with with the way the they interact rhythmically, right, with the bass and the the kick drum, and um, is there is there any usually like do you have to solve like this traditional problem that people talk about when talking about recorded music, right, where you have to get the bass and the kick to sit well together? Do you actually deal with that at all with with them, you know, in the situation of Live thing is a little bit different than the uh, the recording stuff. Yes. Uh, I, of course, mix my drums pretty loud. Mm -hmm. Really yeah. loud. Yes. <laughs> Especially with Stickman. Basically, as long as I have Pat just driving down the middle, yeah. I can do anything with you guys. You know, you can, you can come and go. Pat's the consistent thing. Just drives it straight through and then... So that that kick drum is is pretty in your face. Yeah. So there is no no like masking going on that that has any relevance, right? No, and it, it also it 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 depends on each song as far as where Tony's low end is going to sit. Yeah. So and of of course it's deceiving with what we consider low end, where the stick is really not low end. It's really mid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really mid range. Yeah. So the kick is actually giving us the low end. Yeah. You know. But that's always been the deceiving part with the stick. Everyone thinks it's a slow end thing, but it's really the attack, the attack in the mid range is really what you're you want to hear out of that thing. Yeah. Yeah, so um well maybe one more question so question. So if you're working with um with subs if the system has subs, do you usually send a separate signal to the subs? Yes, if if I can. Mm -hmm. um, of course, every system is different, but yes, if I can, I do. And then I'm just sending the kick and uh, low end from you, uh -huh. um, and low end from Tony. From Tony, but yeah. again, it's deceiving. It's not as low as anyone everyone thinks. Yeah, yeah. Stick. yeah, yeah. And I'm sending uh, just, I mean, if it's tuned correctly, it's either 80 or 100 cycles. So anything below that. I see, I see. Really, the oomph. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And then the sub, the sub it's, itself kind of like uh, brings out the low frequencies in the signal that are probably even not that loud. So it's like an, it's like an EQ in, right. in a way, right? <clears throat> Uh, again, uh, Pat has um, in level five, he hits some bouge thing. <laughs> yeah. Like most systems, you don't hear it, but really good systems, if you send it, if you send it correctly, that will just rattle the room. It's really great. <laughs> <laughs> you know? uh, it is. It is. Okay, so like here's, here's a question I've always been curious about and don't think I asked you, ever asked you about this. So um, if like we're on a tour and we play 25 shows or even 30 and you, you listen to the same songs every night um, and I don't think 
I'm not assuming that we're super consistent in how we play those tunes. No, um, no. and but and which I like. say that again. I which I like. Yeah. I I I'll, I'll give you an example of. Mm -hmm. I, did, I did a tour with uh, Joe Jackson and Todd Rundgren together mm -hmm. uh, with a uh, string quartet. And they're both great. Joe is great, but he, he played the show so consistently every single time. Mm -hmm. Whereas Todd, you know, Todd would come out and either fall flat on his face or have like the most amazing show you'd ever heard in your life, you know, just because of how he, how he goes about it, uh, which for me was so much more exciting. Of course, if it sucked, then, you know, it's like, Oops, well, we tried, <laughs> you know, but other nights it would just be like so amazing. Whereas if you saw the first show from Joe and the last show from Joe, they, they were, they were great, but, they were exactly the same. Mm -hmm. I get that also with you guys. You don't play the same thing, you know, as Bill Bruford would say, never the same way once. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, which is also why I always asked for improvs. Mm -hmm. Every tour I'd be like, give me improvs because if we are doing 24 shows of, I want to hear something new. Every yes. Know, yes. To, to keep me going. Okay. So, what what about the tunes, the pieces that are more consistent, like like Cuss, for example, the piece that you we already mentioned. It's it kind of like the way we don't vary it that much in terms of the parts. But what I'm interested in is like the quality. Let's even just call it the quality of the performance that we deliver. Right. Right. right, and I'm 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 wondering in in how far you can and you have an influence on sort of saving our ass, let's say. Um, and is there is there such a thing as like do you kind of like notice maybe something is sloppy or like like is there do you kind of like do you try to support us or do you kind of keep you know want to just uh, show us naked you know like <laughs> no, no, no 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 absolutely of course of course I do everything I can to make and again I'm dealing with the room so that's different for me every night mm -hmm. um, so I'm also I'm mixing to that particular room. Right, so that's that's going to be different. I, I would imagine for you guys with the, with the in ears, it's probably very pretty, similar. Pretty right? consistent, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I'm I'm still dealing with different size rooms and different systems. So I'm trying to get as much as I can out of that and delivering for a particular room. So yeah, absolutely. I I I don't. <laughs> you know what's that cartoon of? Uh, um, it's a great thing where uh, it's the last night the mixer is is working and he's turning up the suck button on the console. <laughs> so anyway, it's a classic. Uh, <laughs> no, I absolutely do everything I can to make make the show sound good, and I'm doing it not only for the audience but I'm also doing it for me. You know, I, I can't have it sounding like shit. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Hey, do do you remember on the uh, um, South America tour? And I can't remember now which which place it was, but there was this cardboard PA, and I, 
like literally like speakers made out of cardboard. Do you remember that? No. No? Did um, it work? What was it? Yeah, well, you, you came to me and you, you told me that we were made of cardboard. And then at the end of the show or after the show, you came to me and said, it actually sounded pretty good. <laughs> it, was, um, it was a place we had never, not been before. Um, can't remember now. Um, I'll have to look it up, but it was, it yeah. was, I just, you know, that, that, that has always been fascinating to me. Like I remember there was this one show in Dresden that we had where, um, the place had burned down and they, they booked us into some other place and we came into it. That was a really nice stage because everything was, it was a great stage. And then they told us, no, you're playing in the back room. And then we went there and there was just like a, like a PA, which was off to the side of the stage. Right. You remember that, and yes, and because that. because only recently I found I found that show a bootleg of that show, and it sounds sounds awesome. I mean, like the energy is unbelievable, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and I've always admired. Um, like you know, I would I would get so frustrated with having to deal with like these shitty situations, but you just make the best out of them. <laughs> I've been doing it for so long and I've, you know, I find it a challenge. I've worked on probably the shittiest systems all over the world. So it's, it's actually what's informed me to, to do what I do and probably why I, I get through tweaking the system as fast as I do, just because I've done it so many times on it. Um, <laughs> so yeah. what's that story of that triangular room with somebody flipping, flipping burgers next to you? Uh, <laughs> that was, uh, that was actually in Cleveland. Uh, that was a Rory block tour. And, um, yeah, that's, that's one for the book. Um, it was like this restaurant diner type situation. Uh, why we were playing there, I had no idea, but uh, literally the Mackie, Mackie console was set up in the kitchen next to a guy flipping burgers. And I had to stick my head through a square in the wall and look down, you know, to see and hear the band. And of course, I'm getting singed by burger grease and half the console is just covered in grease. And it's just like, wow. Talk about Spinal Tap. And that's where living the dream comes from yes <laughs> so i would say to myself live in the dream you know when when shit like that would happen yes <laughs> i could be working at a you know supermarket so yeah yeah so there is um couple of um, records and like tours that you worked on that I I didn't know that you worked on them that they were kind of like big for me like the Bruford Levin thing right the upper extremities you were the main and the o the only engineer right on that tour yes yes and actually the live uh, Blue Knights record was mixed in my living room on my first blue and white G3 with my uh, first, uh, uh, it was uh, version four of Logic. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is back when eMagic owned the company. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> um, I dragged my rack of ADATs out on the road and basically any, 
any venue that I could actually somehow plug in, I would record the show. Mm -hmm. um, and from that, we went went through it all, and and basically, you know, the record is what it is. But yeah, that was all that was all ADAT recorded stuff mixed on Logic on a blue and white G three that had nine gigs. Wow. Of, of space mm -hmm. and we we're like wow that's huge so that was like uh 32 tracks of adats or no that was 24 tracks of adats so three three machines yeah but that was the only way we could do it I, they couldn't afford to go into the studio to do it so it was like that's that was the uh project that actually got me into the computer uh, stuff yes yeah so, but on on ADAT, how um, um, what was the how much did a did a tape take? How long? Like forty five minutes or twenty five? One hundred twenty minutes. One hundred twenty minutes. One hundred twenty. So it was perfect for recording shows then. Yes. Okay. And uh, I mean, a lot of them, I would uh, I would you know swap them out, throw 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 new tapes in. Um, yeah, because those shows were. Uh, yeah, I mean, they were easily two hour shows, mm -hmm. two to two and a half hour shows. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, that was fun. And those, um, just because I can't really remember those ADAT tapes, um, were those just, just plain VHS tapes or was it something special? Uh, yes, they were, they were VHS tapes. Okay. So it wasn't it wasn't that expensive to to record then. Well, I mean, the system cost me six thousand well, dollars back then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the tape, the tape, no, they probably didn't cost that much. But. Yeah. And that was uh, sixteen bit. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was forty eight k, sixteen bit forty eight k. Yeah, I wanted to ask that about the uh, the three track Rolling Stones stuff that you guys digitized do you remember what the sampling rate was back then in the 80s uh i don't it was all new to me um even i think the uh i think we ended up uh i forget even i think we ended up recording it onto beta mm -hmm. tapes with a pcm converter mm-hmm that's going way back. I, I don't remember any of it. Yeah, no, I'm just curious, but I, I, I guess it was at least CD quality, right? Yes. Must have been, right? Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, I remember Andrew Lug Oldham was in the studio with us. So I don't know if you know who he is. I don't know who he is. Oh. Early producer of uh, the Rolling Stones. Okay. Wow. Which, which studio was that? Uh, it was called uh, West 55th mm -hmm. Street Studios. That was the, the birthplace of the toy specialists. Okay. And their, their claim to fame as a studio was that Led Zeppelin came in and recorded one track for their second record there. They were famous because of one track. Well, the studio was famous. Yes, I, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And um, so, yeah, I, I would like to talk more about the um, 
what started with uh, you know playing or working with Tony. Um, but you said that you moved to Woodstock in '88 and you worked at the at the studio first, right? So you were, and it was it was the studio the Bassville studio. Um, uh, is that relate to the theater? Was that in the same yeah. building? No, no, no. Um, well, Albert Grossman, to give you the, the long history quickly, Albert Grossman, who um, managed Bob Dylan, Janis Joplin, the band, mm -hmm. Todd Rundgren, had the record label, Bearsville Records. Um, uh, basically, him and Bob Dylan at one point owned 99% of the town of Bearsville. Mm -hmm. um, and he... For his artists, he built a, a studio up on Spear, top of Spear Road, and this complex uh, was a farm. Mm -hmm. And he turned, you know, the buildings. This was the original barn, um, and the re you know the restaurants were outbuildings. Um, the only the only building, uh, I mean, they were they were all built onto. The only building is the Utopia building that was built uh, in the late, started in the late 70s for Todd Rundgren as a video studio. Mm -hmm. um, but this, the theater itself was literally raised. They dug out the basement, put the basement in, brought it back down. And of course, the, the lounge is an extension. The stage is actually an extension. If you've been on that stage, if you looked up at the proscenium from your standpoint, there's an outside window. So that was yes. the outside of the building. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, yeah, so this was expanded on. Uh, but yeah, the studio was at the top of Spear Road. Um, that was on a hundred acres. That had um, two working studios in the main building. And then there was the, uh, what was called the Turtle Creek Barn, which was also a recording studio and uh, housing for the artists so mm -hmm. on top of all that he also had like five houses where the artists would stay mm -hmm. so it's basically you come up for a month or two and you you know you camp in and do your record you know? so you come and work i mean the, the theater itself was never from albert's point of view never intended for public consumption he was using it to showcase his artists oh i see Mm -hmm. to industry mm -hmm. professionals. Mm -hmm. And of course, he died before it was finished. Um, I opened it with Sally Grossman, his widow, in 1989. Mm -hmm. She opened it for tax reasons. So it was never it was never really completed back then. In 89, it was because it was just like, do the absolute minimum we have to do to get the thing open. And so... Um, just to understand correctly, so you basically started to work or be at the studio as an engineer or as an intern or whatever, I don't know. <laughs> I, was a, I was an assistant engineer and a technical engineer. Okay. So, uh, and, basically, if you weren't on a session, you were back in the shop trying to fix things and you know, uh, educating yourself on electronics and <laughs> yeah. that sort of thing. And and so and then pretty quickly you kind of got got drawn into opening the theater, 
and and then you you I was the only one Sally's like you know offered it to everyone at the <laughs> studio and everyone's like I don't do that and I was like I'll do that and uh, about a year later they all got pissed off at me because I was making an extra 500 bucks a week you know <laughs> working at the theater and so they're like how come I'm not doing that it's like well you didn't want it And then that went for how many years? Uh, I was out of here by 94. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, again, started uh, doing some studio work and really started touring by that, by that point. What was the first artist you toured with? Uh, it was actually Robbie Dupree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He had a hit song called Steal Away um, in the 80s. And um, I mean, it's a great track, but his, 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 he's always had great musicians. He's a great R&B artist. He's a big fan of Paul Butterfield. Um, but his, his bands are always fantastic. Mm -hmm. I did one record at that time with him, um, and the band was uh, Robbie. Tony Levin, Steve Gadd, and John Hall mm -hmm. on guitar. Mm -hmm. And they cut that record in two days. Because <laughs> it was just like, you know, I mean, that level of musicianship, it was like two takes tops mm -hmm. for anything. It was done. You know? mm -hmm. So, yeah, that was, uh, that was the first tour that I did. And uh, I got some great stories from that tour. We ended up doing... Um, We did a bus tour basically down to Nashville and back, and we also went to Japan at that time. But, uh, very, very, very funny guy. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I met Robbie a couple times in Woodstock. Um, so it was so it was through Robbie being uh, working at the studio that you got that gig, or how did that work? Um, how did I how did I get the gig? Um, well, I did work with him at the studio, but I I I, I met him again at a restaurant bar later on, <laughs> and we hung out that night and we just clicked. You know, the humor was sickening, <laughs> <clears throat> and we just became fast friends. Of like, you know, this guy is hilarious, and I was cracking him up, and so. Uh, anyway, he'd also seen me working at the theater, so he knew I could do this, and uh, okay. he brought me in. Mm -hmm. And uh, very similar with all the guys I work with in town. Um, I think Robbie probably did introduce me to Orleans, uh, how I got how I got that gig. But David Sanchez and Tony Levin, I'd worked with separately on other projects, but again, they'd all seen me at the theater with whatever show that they came to and uh, at least knew I could, I could do it. So, so, so Tony's, uh, well, the first time you worked with Tony, was that actually the Bruford Levin upper extremities or? For live. Uh, I mean, for his, for his project, for live, his project, I've worked on studio stuff with him. Oh, okay. 
actually my first uh, my first session was Anderson Bruford Wakeman Howe. Oh, really? And that's that's when I first met Tony. Uh, and I had no idea that he'd lived in town here. And that that was recorded at uh, at Bassville Studio or mixed. It was mixed at Bassville. Okay. Uh, what who and, was who uh, was who was the engineer mixing it? <clears throat> uh, Richard Thompson, Michael Barbiero. Okay, and their uh, claim to fame at the time was uh, Guns N' Roses' "Appetite for Destruction." So they were like the hot mixers at the moment. Interesting. And what? Who? Uh, who was the producer again? I think I, it was a British guy, right? Well, uh, the only guy I worked with was John Anderson. It was yeah, basically okay. my job to take care of John Anderson. Mm -hmm. uh, there was no producer in the in the studio at that In time. Interesting, yeah, because I I really think that that record sounds interesting. It's uh, I mean, kind of a really really cool in between worlds kind of sound. Yeah. Well, a, a lot of it was MIDI, mm -hmm. you know, programming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and of course, Bill's all electronic drums and. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty weird. I mean, I I love the record, but definitely uh, not as, a, as as organic as you would uh, expect a guest record to be. Yeah, but but you know anyway, that I had no idea Tony lived in town, and I was uh, the front door was this big glass door, you know, right in the, the coffee area. Basically, you walk into the building into a coffee area, and then it would split off into the studios and the offices. And uh, I'm basically having a cup of coffee standing at the front door. And then this motorcycle pulls up with his back to me. You know, Parks pulls his helmet off and it's some bald guy. And he, he turns around. It's Tony Levin. I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> yeah. And my first words to Tony were, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know. <laughs> like, I let him in and he's like, how you doing? Do you know where Studio B is? And I literally, like, my only starstruck moment ever was with Tony Levin. <laughs> Amazing. And of course, he'd been there a hundred times already working, so he knew exactly where Studio B was. You know. <clears throat> hey, but so I was literally so surprised that I was just, like, mumbling at the guy. <laughs> so, of course, his first impression of me was, like, some asshole that can't speak. <laughs> so, hey, that's I, one of those five minutes. I'm, I'm not sure if you know that, but I had a, uh, one of the, an important event in my life was actually making a phone call to Woodstock, to um, Trey Gunn, when they were recording the Sylvian Fripp thing, because I bought my first stick from Trey. Right. And back then, there was, I didn't have email. It was in right. at the end of '92, so and I was I was 19, having right. having to make a phone call to a studio in the U.S. You know, as a German boy. Dreamland, Dreamland Studios. It was probably Dreamland Studios, yes, uh, and that that was uh, that was very very exciting, and everything worked. And I like just a few months later, I had the stick, so that was that was good. Um, I was wondering, did you um, when Crimson first? Uh, rehearsed and recorded in in Woodstock for the Room EP, I think it was. 
Did you, uh, were you uh, aware of it or were you involved or? I was aware of it. I was not involved in that. I was involved in an earlier uh, week or so of sessions with Trey and Jerry Murata. Yeah. Not many people know um, Jerry Murata. I don't know if he was in Crimson, but I think Robert was checking him out to see if he would be a fit. So it was uh, it was Robert, Trey, Jerry, Tony. Uh, it might have been Adrian, maybe not, but mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we spent about a week uh, doing that, and then roughly six to twelve months later, they came back to the same studio that was Applehead Studios that we did that in. But I was uh, I was working. I was. I was not able to do those sessions. Do you have any recollection of those sessions with Jerry? Like if there was any material rehearsed that was later recorded? I mean, did they, I mean, did they play room or something like that? Do you know? No idea. Yeah. No idea. Yeah. I think just from a, from a, like for historical, reasons it would be interesting to know uh what kind of material was in circulation at that point you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i think i think it was all just improv you know yeah. trying to see if jerry would be a, a good fit yeah yeah speaking of uh trey and tony i think i'm the one guy who lives in a, a world where Trey Gunn plays Tony Levin parts and Tony Levin plays Trey Gunn's parts. <laughs> yes. Have you ever thought about that? Yeah, yeah. The Dirty Project, Trey's playing all Tony's stuff and with Stickman, <laughs> Tony's playing Trey's stuff. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so, it's, yeah. That one popped into my head once. So, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so um, tell me more about what happened um, just like with your career as a life mix engineer. So after Robbie, um, uh, again, yeah, we're talking 25 years. So, um, a lot of these things would be one-offs. Um, you know, I've worked, I've, I've gone on the road with a lot of people and they're usually just one kind of thing. Uh, my long-term stuff obviously has been Tony Levin over the years. So it was, Blue, Tony Levin Band, Stickman. Mm -hmm. uh, again, 10 years with Todd Rundgren. Um, Orleans, I'm still doing shows with them. So that's that's from the you know 90s, mid-90s, I started working with them. Mm -hmm. Robbie Dupree, I'm still working with. Um, uh, Donna Lewis, I've been working with. Yeah. Um, you know, since the 90s. Uh, we just did a, a week-long video shoot here of her, uh, I think it's a 25-year anniversary of her debut record. So we did we did the uh, whole record live. Mm -hmm. Gail Ann Dorsey on bass, Doug Uell on uh, um, drums, Harvey Jones on keyboards, Bowie's guitarist, um, uh, Jerry. Yeah, Jerry. Yeah. Jerry Leonard. Yeah. Jerry Leonard on guitar. Mm -hmm. Great band. 
Uh, so that was a lot of fun. So, so I mean, what, yeah. You know, so it, again, it's like two-year cycles. If you look at every two years, these things just keep coming back around. Mm. So obviously security project. I know I did uh, tray guns first, uh, the early days with four was opening. Uh, I mean, after they did the Crimson thing, the first tour was opening for Trey Gunn, uh, which we did a, we did a West coast tour and that was in the mid nineties, I think. Yeah. I mean, how long have they, they've been around 25 years now, right? 30, 30. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I was I was going to ask about the Traygun band thing. So you you became their engineer too, right? Yes. And uh, that must have been kind of exciting, right? I mean, I I can only imagine. Uh, it was it was very exciting. I I really dug Trey's writing. I, you know, I thought his records sounded great. Mm -hmm. um, that was with Bob Muller on drums and um, who's the guitar player? You know him. Well, Tony Jabal was on guitar. Yeah. yeah. And then there was another guy playing like stick on, on the war guitar uh, uh, or a bass on the war that, guitar. That was the floating guy. Yeah. You know, it was kind of different, I think, every time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Now, was that before Blue or after Blue? No, that was before Blue. Are you sure? I think so. I don't know. Because um, we had done we had done a tour of Japan with Blue and Project Project Two. Two. Yeah. That yes. was uh, Adrian on drums, Trey and Robert. Yeah. So you basically had Robert, Trey, Adrian, Tony, and Bill on one stage, mm -hmm. but not playing together. So. And Pretty you had wild. and David Torn, David Torn, and Chris Bodie. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Well, actually, the uh, the blue stuff was uh, my introduction to improv. Mm -hmm. And I just loved it immediately. You know, it's like, oh, we get we get to create now. You know, mm -hmm. I have no idea what's coming at me, and you know, it's every man for himself kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just it just makes the performance more exciting for me as the the mix engineer. Mm -hmm. You know, I love Orleans, but. Every, you know, you're going to get the hits no matter what. <laughs> yeah, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I could I could play like all the shows. They could be completely improvised. Yeah, <laughs> that we do. Well, yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So um, let's let's just talk a little bit about like the let's say the. Um, not so much about the music aspect of being on the road, but just the the mere, uh, were well, you know, I, 
I only started touring like on this level with Stickman like 10 years ago. It was 10 years ago that I joined and that we had the first tour together in, in Argentina where I think in, in Tucumán where like the, it was like the, the morning after the first show was when the, when the van doors at the back opened and our stuff <laughs> flew out, right? Do you remember that on the highway? I thought, I thought it was you coming in for the first time. I think it happened it happened with you. I don't think I was in the van. I thought your first mm. your, I think your first introduction was the <laughs> shit falling out of the back. Maybe or I, I yeah, probably. I can't remember. I thought it was the the the, the, the morning after the show, but maybe you're right. It might, it might have been. <laughs> no, maybe maybe you're right. Um but just just you know like I'm I'm interested in um like what is your your way i mean i kind of like know and i don't don't know much because i hardly ever see you when we're um staying in hotels right like you seem to be chilling and taking it easy most of the time that you're that we are not actually traveling and right. I, i think that that probably is like like a super clever thing to do right? and 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 I see it. I see it in Tony, for example. And you, you like you know that Tony sometimes seems to be so like low energy, like as if as if he's sort of like holding everything back just to be kind of 100 for the shows, right? And um, so, how do how yeah. do you do that? Well, obviously, our van rides are a prime example of how that works. So we all get in the van and we're going on to wherever you know we got a four hour drive in front of us. And, you know, there's about five to 10 minutes of chatting amongst ourselves. And then it goes silent for three hours. Mm -hmm. You know, no one says anything to anyone. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, imagine if you had someone just talking that whole time. You know, that's really like the sacred space of like mm -hmm. everyone chill, everyone relax, you know, because... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, imagine the, the amount of work you'd have to do. I mean, it was with, uh, yeah, if you had someone in the van that just was constantly engaging in a conversation. Yeah. And actually, Tony's the first one that I, you know he's going to crack. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he's going to just, like, lose it and just tell the person to shut up. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah, you know, but it's. Like everyone goes into their own world at that point. It, you know, either you're sleeping or you're on your laptop or you're listening to music in your own world. So, yeah, everyone everyone kind of deals with it in their own way. You know, Robert, um, for me, meeting you, and I mean you, Pat, and Tony, but also in particular you, for me, it was like the first couple of years or more even was really like an internship. And I... Uh, I, I took it like that and and yeah. also just just musically because I didn't really have any idea where I where I stood right I didn't had no idea what my standing was just in terms even of my musicianship or even like I didn't know what I was able to to contribute let's say so like the first couple of years I just tried to do a job that was like so that that they could shine right that was sort of like my idea so to be like a support right, right supportive right. right and but then um like as the side effect of just just being there with you and like seeing how you do things and like the like you say and this this you just used the words sacred space 
I think that's that's really uh, something I I mean I was always a guy who respected that I mean like you know I'm I'm that kind of person but just seeing it in action and seeing how powerful it is to kind of re respect everybody's like privacy and and uh, downtime and you know just um, and I think it really it that's maybe one of the things that kind of like shows in the performances because like the performances seem to be extra powerful because we're so focused and 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 peaceful <laughs> during the day yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um so from uh a lot of that time 2010 to 2015 i was also operating the bearsville theater so any time that i had off i had to deal with this place so i was just online most most of the time um you know trying to trying to deal with whatever um so maybe that's why i wasn't socializing as much or you know but yeah, yeah. other times it'd just be like i'm tired i'm going to bed kind of thing yeah so, but you 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 said that on Robbie's first tour or your first tour with Robbie, um, you guys already went to Japan. So, like from the very beginning of you doing the job, you also had the experience of uh, working in a foreign country where people speak a foreign language, and um, which I think maybe probably is is not sometimes it's not easy, right? Like if it's hard to communicate with the local staff, and or how well, how, that, do, how do you deal with that? That one uh, was complete culture shock. Um, of course, Japan is a is a different thing. First of all, they are going to get it right. You know, they're not going to rely on us actually. Mm. So, <clears throat> you know, that was the first time. Um, you know, a, a prime example w with Blue when we went to Japan. You know. Before I got there, I had, uh, you know, hours and hours and hours of emails back and forth of like, this is what's going to happen. This is, you know, so-and-so mm -hmm. is doing this. Everyone's job is this. And as soon as I get there, I have uh, a production meeting with literally about 30 people. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And of course, there's a translator. There's an English-speaking person mm -hmm. um, translating everything, and they want to go, you know, step by step through absolutely everything. And of course, a lot of it, I don't know what it's going to be, because mm -hmm. um, the 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 time we went there, we started the tour in Japan and then came back to the states. So I didn't necessarily know. You know what the set list was going to be what what you know anything was so uh the next day we ended up doing our first show and we did a, a you know setup and sound check and again as you know now the japanese crews i had no idea at the time i'm, I'm used to the american you know maybe half a guy shows up you know um where they literally had five people for each artist, you know, dealing with, you know, where they're setting up and, and they're measuring and, you know, taking pictures of where everything are, the settings and all this stuff. And, um, of course I, as I said, I, I'd never dealt with this before. And then the next day, Oh, uh, 
Yeah, so the next day, we end up doing the show. The next day, get to the venue. And I, 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 we're a totally different city. And I, um, I'm looking at the front of house console. I'm like, wow, this board is, you know, left kind of like I can, you know, kind of start. Me not thinking, oh, they took pictures of the console where I left it and actually set it up. You know, it took me like four, four or five shows to figure it out. It's like, oh, they're they're actually doing this. But the funny thing, the next day, the band shows up. Bill walks out to his drum kit, sits down at the drum kit, and literally like picks up the hi hat stand and moves it like half an inch to the left. All of a sudden, five guys come out of the curtains and like, what went wrong? <laughs> You know, the hi-hat was not in the right place. And I'm looking at this going like, holy crap, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. You know, first mm -hmm. of all, that they're so into it and, you know, getting it right. Mm -hmm. But after all that said and done, we come back to the States and our first show is at a place called Toad's Place mm -hmm. in uh, in Connecticut. And as I said, the, the one guy is out back smoking a joint half the console had had beer spilled into the thing so half of it didn't work and you know and it was just like holy crap coming back you know the culture shock was just like oh now i get it <laughs> americans suck you know it was just so unbelievable the difference in the production value you know mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. yeah so getting back to it japan is is a uh, is not really a good example because they go so over the top you know, making it correct, making mm. it right. Uh, I'm trying to think where um, it, uh, do you remember Australia? Was any of that wacky? It was super wacky. Okay, so yeah, like 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 the everybody seems to be a slacker. Yeah, like okay, that so we that we had to deal with. All right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and I remember that 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 one show. I can't remember now. Maybe it was Sydney. That was like like the longest sound check we ever had. Like nothing worked, and like cables were missing, and we were still sound checking at eight thirty. Right. Um, and that that was really a not not a good <laughs> not a good show. All right. Well, <laughs> there you go. You answered your own question. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's different in every place. I think we've been really lucky. Most most people are want to be there. A, they want to be there to take part. Yes. And uh, you know, maybe they don't look at it as a chore or something. But yeah. uh, the one place, who was that with? Um, <clears throat> what's actually happened to me in Scotland? on a Todd Runger tour that I could not understand a fucking word coming out of the guy's mouth. He was speaking English, but I couldn't understand it. And also, um, uh, what's, what's the area in between, uh, Northern Spain and France, uh, Basque country. Basque. Yeah. All right. So I knew they were speaking Spanish, but I couldn't, in my in my limited experience with Spanish, I can usually pick out some words yeah, like, it's, "Oh, it's not it's not Spanish." It's a uh, 
Well, I, I a different kind of language. Me and I'm just like I'm making finger <laughs> signs at the guy. I, you know, literally did not understand a word. <laughs> but it was funny in Scotland. The guy's speaking English, but it was so fast, so rapid fire that I was just like, I don't get it. <laughs> Stop. That's that's like trying to put a show on and trying to explain stuff. Yeah. Did you do, did you or do you did you uh do you enjoy the the flying that's involved in touring? I hate the flying. I've over the years I've I've grown to hate it more and more and more and more. That's mm -hmm. one thing I have enjoyed in the past years that I haven't been on a plane. I mean, our last one, of course, one of the worst flights ever from the States is to Japan. And to, to land there and to go, oh, the tour's canceled. It's like, have some sushi, get back on the plane. You know, that's, that's drag. You know that I, I stayed about four more yeah. days. And when I left Nar Gary. Narita Airport, the airport was empty. Like it was shocking, and you know, at that point, I knew, okay, this is serious. Like really, um, that's when I really understood. Yeah, well, I remember coming back into the states, and there was not one. Uh, you know, there was nothing like uh, get tested here or or get checked out. It was just like everyone was just you know coming into the country. There was no sign. Of, of any, uh, the government doing anything, you know, responsible to. It's, it's interesting it. because basically, right, it's just door, it's just one, one door, you open the door to the plane, you go into the land, you get out, and that's like on the one side, everything's shut down, on the other side, everything's open. Yeah. Uh, insane, right? Like yeah. there, there we see like that, uh, um, maybe as, as uh, the, you know, human beings we need to think at least now we need to think like in a more connected way and yeah. to make sure that you know like when i first uh, spoke with trey after like maybe like the first three or four weeks of the the pandemic right and he said to me uh marcus it's so easy we you know we just need to shut down things for a week or two weeks or something like everybody and this thing is goes away like right. can you see what happens right what happened like <laughs> right. It's over a year now. It's o it's over a year. Um so touring Europe um you know Europe being such a, a different kind of structure let's say as opposed to the US where you grew up. So um you have so many different cultures in a in a really small space and you basically you you get on the on the van and like three hours later you're in a completely different climate right. and Right. Very, very different people and uh, um, and like remember like we we play a show in in uh, 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 southern it southern Italy and then uh, next day we play in northern in in Norway right or something like that um, yeah. how, how is that for an American actually to get to to get to know um, the uh, well, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's it's just such a different, it's such a different. Um, for me, as a European, 
coming to the U.S. It's it's it, what is exciting and what is special about it is the fact that the the his the history is so is not that old, right? Like it's and and it has it has all these this this kind of like this um, a certain kind of certain kind of openness, right? And um, but you you having an Italian name and probably like an Italian family, right? That that. I don't. Do you do you know when your family came over from Europe? I do. Uh, well, on, on my father's side, um, my uh, great 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 grandfather came over from a, a ship out of Germany. Ah. Um, and he was a wine importer uh, from Gemme. Mm -hmm. Which is uh, north northwest Italy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I, I I have the date written down. It, there's actually an article in a book about the guy in a wine book of all things. Mm -hmm. well. um, um, yeah, so I, I guess it was the 1800s sometime. So maybe may a stupid question, but. Do you feel like anything that's familiar when you're in Italy? Is there? Do you feel any connection? <laughs> well, oddly enough, oddly enough, the only time I've had like uh, you know what you would consider an outer body experience is when I flew into England for the first time. Mm -hmm. For some reason, I was like something like came over me, and I just did this DNA. 23andMe thing mm -hmm. a while ago, and it turns out that I'm like 75% English oh. <laughs> and like 5% Italian. Yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> I don't know if that was a factor or anything. So, yeah, I mean, I've, I've had it going into England. But, again, this was before I knew of uh, the English blood. So Interesting, interesting. And I was always like... I, I sunburn in 15 minutes if I'm out in the sun. How can this be if I'm Italian? <laughs> you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. So. Yeah, for, for me, it's, it's interesting because sometimes uh, when I meet people on the road and even like in South America or in the US and um, I feel that there's like something where I, I can't just quite put my finger on it. There's a certain kind of like vibe I get, right? And it doesn't. It's 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 nothing specific that I can name, but right. uh, sometimes really it turns out that those people have German ancestors. Oh really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I've I've noticed that a couple times, or more than a couple times, that there is like some sort of, uh, and I don't know how that works because I I basically don't even believe in this idea that we are separate, yeah, yeah. right? You know, that's that's what I'm saying. I don't believe it either, but I'm telling you this happened to me. Yeah. And again, this was before I always thought it would, you know, I was of uh, Italian Irish descent. But when I flew into England, this mm -hmm. thing happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yes, of course, years later, I find out that I'm, you know, the majority of my blood is actually English. So I don't know. I can't explain it. But getting back to the other thing, um, as far as traveling, 
we're actually in a lucky, fortunate place because most of the people we meet are fans, you know, and they're mm -hmm. inviting mm -hmm. to us. You know, they want us there. And it's, you know, it's not like if I was traveling on my own, you know, it, I'm sure it would be much different. You know, um, also on that very that very first show in Tucumán in Argentina with you guys, um, before the show, like maybe at four in the afternoon, four or five in the afternoon after sound check, Tony asked me to go. Well, I mean, I can't even remember. He asked me, but we went to a coffee bar that was right, really, like right next to the the venue. Right, and. Um, It was it was fascinating because like obviously the people and the, like the old lady that was serving us in that place had no idea who Tony Levin was, so he was a nobody, right? He was a nobody. <laughs> and then, um, like we went back in, and and Tony said to me, "Okay, Marcus, tonight here in the in the lobby, there's going to be like the signing after the show, and you tell me what you think tomorrow, right?" Because he already knew what was going to happen, and I had yeah, no, yeah. I had no idea, you know. So, yeah. so then um, that was like it was like one of those evenings where like three hundred people wanted a, an autograph, and like it was 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 crazy. And you know what? I didn't have a sharpie. <laughs> <laughs> so, He should have at least warned you about yeah, that. Yes, yes, he didn't. But but anyway, it was you know for me it was fascinating to see. Okay, so um, and it was a good introduction because like having experienced that you know there's like Tony Levin, famous bass player, that old lady. She couldn't care less about him, and yeah, then, yeah. then a few hours later there were three hundred people wanting an autograph. And and that was that was like a good good initiation for me, kind of like to understand. Yeah, but that's also that's the deceptive, the deceptive thing. You ha yeah. you have to. As I, I know, I've had the conversation with you about certain uh, musicians that I've worked with in the past, where they buy into all that adulation mm -hmm. and start believing it, kind of thing. It's mm -hmm. like, well, that's not necessarily reality, mm -hmm. you know. You really have to look at: Are you playing the top of your game? Are you actually contributing something to this thing, or are you believing the hype? You know, people come up to me. It's like, sounds great, and you know, if I had a shitty night, <clears throat> I'm kind of like, fuck off. You know. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. Know, I, so, you know, that's it's a kind of a double-edged sword sometimes with all that adulation. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and like, and I guess that's what I was trying to say. That somehow um, I, I'm so lucky to be in that group with you guys, where it's kind of like a healthy, healthy functioning uh, yeah. thing, right? Like, and yeah. uh, and well, believe me, without you, this thing would have ended a long time ago. And you've absolutely made leaps and bounds as far as your playing is concerned but yes also all the all the production all the stuff that you do because i know tony and pat are not going to do it you know <laughs> as far as the records and all that so this yes it yeah. literally would have been over you know yeah a long time ago 
No, it's 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 a good. So people people are always shocked when I say it's really Marcus's band. Mm. <laughs> I said it to Pete Levin. He's like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> I <was> like, well, <clears throat> <laughs> yeah. without Marcus, it's not going to happen. Mm. Yeah. yeah. The energy level. That's all I'm talking about. Is the energy level. I know. I just know Tony and Pat probably wouldn't put all the work into it they wouldn't put the work that you're putting into it yes yeah yeah as i say like for me it's 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 the most it's the most public thing i do yeah. and for them it's probably the least public thing they do <laughs> but, but I, it's fun i mean it's still it's still no it, it, it's fun and like what i what i think is really the for me as an artist right like just purely like as an artist it's such a, uh, a pri it's a real privilege to be able to go on a stage and do whatever we like. And, yeah, well, and it's certainly unique. Yes, and 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 you know, like for some reason, um, people expect to be surprised. You know, it's not that they they want to hear the same songs over and over again, even right. Even, right. Yeah, and and. Um, and even though this, what, what I'm going to say now is is maybe wrong, but to me, I get always get this image because I, when I first uh, became aware of Tony, that was because of his bass playing on So, on that on Peter Gabriel's record, and and that was such a such so big over here at least, like Im immensely big, that I I still kind of like I'm grateful for. The mix engineer <laughs> decide to make Tony's bass that loud on the re on that record, you know. Right. Like in a way, it's it's like all these all these factors coming together. There's this great record that really defines what a bass can do in a pop production, right? And and being right. artistic and being out front and being being a, you know full of character and 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 all of that is has been projected onto Tony and like he's and he's also great. Because he he really is that way, right? So it's uh, and and so I I thank you know I thank the God of so <laughs> for the <laughs> for the well, opportunity. Even before that, even before that, I mean the bass and drums are such a big big part of Peter Gabriel's music. For me, it goes way before so. Um, yeah, exposure for me probably mm -hmm. was like who's the bass player, you know. Um, with uh, with you being a, a Genesis fan, um, were you a Genesis fan before Gabriel left the band, or after? After, so okay. Well, he left in seventy four. That I uh, seventy four, seventy five, which uh, I would have been uh, eleven years old, twelve years old when that yeah. happened. Um, but yeah, directly led me to, to Peter's solo career and yeah, all of a sudden the bass is mixed louder mm -hmm. in these recordings. Yes. Yes. And did, and then of course, Peter's third record, which is the, the melting face one, uh, with no symbols. It was just, uh, and all stick mm -hmm. like, wow. This is amazing stuff, and then discipline came out. Yes, you know. Yeah. 
which was also the record discipline was the record that um, made me aware that there is this music out there you know yeah. like <clears throat> um so with genesis and gabriel um are those still related in your mind like the music is that it's two different absolutely. lineages no, yeah. absolutely not but i do have to say the first the first song i ever heard was back in new york city off the lamb and from there i went backwards and selling by the pound and you know um but again at the time i'd never heard anything like it there was just this something about it nowadays of course there's a lot of bands maybe like them but back then in the 70s there there wasn't uh so it was just totally new for me and i just uh, completely absorbed all of it um and yeah so it was it was interesting that I started with the lamb worked backwards with king crimson started with discipline and worked backwards Mm -hmm. um and with Gabe, uh, gabriel i could only go forward since he he only had maybe one or two records out at the time mm -hmm. uh but it was the eno stuff that really threw me yeah good good that you're mentioning you know because like maybe we've already talked nine over 90 minutes but uh let's maybe to finish off the conversation let's talk about your music because i don't okay. i don't i don't think people are aware that you've been um you know writing and producing your own stuff and i didn't know like there was this great music in the like the opening uh tape that you used to used to play at least uh at the crimson uh project shows and um like there were and especially at the end it was always at the end. It was never in the beginning. The beginning, I would do yours, Pat's, and Tony's side, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> uh, and the end, I would play, I did, a, I did an edit of uh, a Tony Levin band song called Utopia. Mm -hmm. Basically cut a seven-minute song down to a minute and a half. You know, mm -hmm. just as an outro for the for the band, and then I would just play some of my weird ambient stuff. And I had started um, back in the eighties. Um, I used to write music for a uh, video house in Jersey. Mm -hmm. They'd call me up and say, "I need thirty seconds of, you know, incidental music," you know segueing from this thing into another thing so i had a little midi studio and i would just make something up over the weekend and mix it and send it to them by monday morning but i'd always you know i noodled back that was back when i was a su supposed musician mm -hmm. um, so as far as my own music it's i obviously don't write lyrics or sing or anything like that so i'm not doing you know song songy type stuff i just create atmospheres and usually the way they usually come about is that i'm screwing around with some effect mm -hmm. from that effect i hear something and i just follow it down the road and see see where that takes it and uh create it into something but uh, over the years i have i have sold uh a few pieces uh 
four films. Actually, uh, a good friend of mine is a, is the uh, chief editor at Sony Pictures. So I've had nine pieces of music in major motion pictures. Amazing, yeah. But, you know, but it, it's always backgroundy. You know, you're walking into a diner and like the background music is playing, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So, so how so, how how much how much back catalog do you have of music have, that you like? Oh, that I like? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I like any of it, but <laughs> whether I can tolerate listening to it. But yeah, I've got 30 years of, of stuff. Um, and it's funny, uh, a guy who I played in a band with actually found all our demo stuff and he's, he started redoing them all, you know, from, from the 80s. Mm-hmm. And he's sending me these tracks and I'm like, oh, they sound pretty good. You know, but this was when I was recording on a four track cassette machine. So the demos I have are just hiss, you know, it's just, you know, with some inkling of, uh, of music underneath that. But, um, my stuff has always kind of lent itself to a film kind of scenario. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's really all I can say about my stuff. Yeah, I would. I would be interested in in hearing more. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot someday. of it's a lot of ambient stuff. It's a lot of you know droning things. I did. Uh, I did a. Um, oh, back then it was uh, what is a ninety minute. I filled up ninety minutes worth of music for an art installation, mm-hmm. and uh, so. The the uh, the installation included uh, two. Um, what what would they be called? Um, a cassette machine that basically would play the cassette and then it would flip it over to the other side and start playing it. So it would just keep going. It would be a looping cassette mm-hmm. machine. Mm-hmm. So there was two of them. So you would start one thing and about 20 minutes in you would start the other one and then just throughout the this was going on for like two weeks this installation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so that was just looping over and over and over you know as background ambient music for this for this thing so there's lots of lots of weird stuff like that yeah you know i enjoy doing you know the the reason why i'm kind of like insisting uh that it's probably uh good stuff is that what i heard on on top of being ambient right like there right. is there's this there's this element of it where it has some something about it that kind of like draws you in if you if you are a, a musically inclined person let's say right, <laughs> right, right 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 there's there's something about like it's not just any ambient music like there's you know you can have you have Brian Eno and you have like Yeah, you know, like even though you can play Brian Eno's music in an elevator, it is not elevator music. Right. The difference between Eno and New Age. Yes. Yeah. You know. So yeah. Yeah. technically, it's probably the same thing. But yeah. And what I was just what I'm trying to say is that like the couple tracks I heard from you, they they seem to have like this, you know, something something that actually makes my ears go oh. You know what's what's that, and that's that's why um, 
probably someday you know like when when you're you know i know that you're probably not planning on retiring uh very soon but <laughs> i don't think i can but honestly yeah 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 no i i know like I, certainly like for you and and me um I mean, with like Pat, I talked to Pat um, a couple of weeks ago, and he actually said to me that he's kind of like um, really uh, considering to retire. He, really? Well, he said he feels he feels like it's an option. Right? Yeah. You know, he said something like that, and I can see that. You know, it's but it's those extra ten years, right? Like or like Pat is eight. I think eighteen years older than I than me, but. Um, for us, for you know, for you and me, it's really like, like, a real deep cut in something that was actually going somewhere. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and I I find that is that is really in a way that's it's obviously quite destructive, but also if I if I think about it like clearly, I could see that there's maybe I'm not saying that this is good that it's happening uh, to us this this. In this this in for, this uh, forceful break, right? Um, but but I can see that maybe uh, something really new and fresh um, may happen. You know, I'm trying to stay positive. Well, as I said, after 30 plus years of audio, I'm a video guy now. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've had to learn this whole new profession. Mm -hmm. So, um, and it's it's been it's been fun. It's been interesting. Um, but yeah, I've had to really just totally dive in and, and figure something else out, you know, since I, I can't get people in the building. So it's the only way I can make any money here. Yeah. So I, so you got, are you doing streaming shows? I've been do, doing streaming and <clears throat> I'm trying to do um, more camera shoots, multi-camera mm -hmm. video shoots. Mm -hmm. um, let me see if you can see this. Yes. Oh. This is my little commercial I put together. Yeah. Ah, I see. It looks 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 very good. So this is the stuff I've been able to do with no audiences. Yeah. Professor Louie. Early days, early days of my bad lighting. I see, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, I, um, I uh, saw the the footage of the uh, like 30 minute concert that we recorded for the deep DVD. It was used as part of the, the film that, that Jack did. Do you even remember that? Yeah. It was, um, and, and yeah, lighting, lighting was, <laughs> was a problem a little bit, right? But anyway, um, this is, this, you might find this funny because, um, 
remember that you gave me like this uh, collection of uh, audience uh, noise kind of cheering yeah. and yes that, yes of that and um, and I think on on that recording <laughs> um, and I don't know who did it it must have maybe at, at mastering like the the audience audience noise is just so <laughs> it's like 2,000 people cheering after cusp Right, right. <laughs> <And> <laughs> yeah. It's it's uh, hilarious. It's right. good, but <laughs> right, they're not actually looking at the picture, are they? So yeah, no, you don't you don't see the audience at all, and yeah. uh, it's uh, it's funny. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Robert, uh, let's just let's just hope that we'll uh, we can see each other, and like who knows if the if the camp is going to happen, if it's well. Happened, uh, the the way uh, I'm I'm looking at the scientists only they're saying July August everyone who wants a vaccine should be vaccinated in the states, mm. which means you know October November December. Yes. So actually September it's usually is it usually August, in August August yeah. Well, there's a possibility. Yes. There's a possibility. Yeah. And you know, like I had just gotten my my visa in June, uh, twenty nineteen, right? And right. so I'm I'm kind of like losing two years of of a three year visa, at least. Yeah. So I would I would have to start the process again in a couple of months. Let's let's see if we can uh, <laughs> convince. Uh, <laughs> The, the group to invest into something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> anyway, was fun. yeah, it was fun. Great talking to you, and all the best. And yeah, see you, see you in a few weeks. Okay. Yes. Bye, Robert. Take care. Yeah, take care. Bye.